We'll hear argument first this morning, number 97371, National Endowment for the Arts versus Karen Finley. Uh, General Waxman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, since 1965, the National Endowment for the Arts has selectively provided funding, public funding, to arts projects on the basis of aesthetic judgments in order to enrich the lives of all Americans and to expand public appreciation of art. The question presented in this case is whether, although it thus expands the opportunities for artistic expression, Congress violated the First Amendment, that is, made a law abridging the freedom of speech by directing that the NEA ensure, quote, that artistic excellence and artistic merit are the standards by which applications are judged, taking into consideration general standards of decency and respect for the diverse beliefs and values of the American public. I am sure the court is as anxious as I am to get to the merits. Do you think this case is justiciable? You took the position in the district court that it was not. What, what's the best case that makes it justiciable, if you think it is? It seems remote, Just seems Kenneth. not concrete. The plaintiff originally sued because he didn't get a grant, then he sued because he did. I don't know what he wants to produce. I don't know if he's been denied uh, any specific rights. Justice, I'm dealing with the question in the abstract. Justice Kennedy, I think that the question of Article III justiciability, which of course must be measured at the time the suit was commenced, or really in this case, at the time that the pre-1990 claims were settled and all that was left in the case was the facial challenge to the 1990 Act is a close one. In the district court, we challenged Article III, the Article III justiciability issue, both on the question that these plaintiffs lack standing and also because since the agency had adopted an interpretation that basically concluded that the, the 1990 language was satisfied merely by the creation of extremely diverse panels, and that decency and respect were not expressly to be considered as independent factors at the grant-making stage, the agency was in a, the process, process was in effect no different than it had been before, other than the fact that the diversity of the panels was greater. And therefore, our view was that the agency was not doing anything significantly different after the district court ruled than before it ruled. And conversely, if this court were to agree with our statutory interpretation, the agency would be permitted, although not compelled, to continue to operate the program precisely the way it's operating now. Now, this was not an issue that we raised on appeal or we raised in our petition in this court. And I wish I could tell you exactly why that's the case, because I wasn't there. But I suspect that the, we concluded that there was some marginal concreteness or some marginal justiciability here by the fact that before, between the time that the 1990 amendment was passed in November of 90 and the time that the district court issues, it issued its injunction in June of 1992, we actually read to the panel members the language of the statute. We then told them that they were to judge applications on the basis of artistic merit and artistic excellence and that the other words, the words that follow taking into consideration, had been taken into consideration by the creation of extremely diverse panels in which each person from a diverse walk of life would bring his or her own individual sensibilities to that question. And we argued to the district court that, in fact, the case was not just disability. There was no injury. 
and there was no redressability possible. In fact, during the period between the time that the 1990 amendments were passed and the district court ruled, three of the five plaintiffs in this case received grants under the standard that they had concluded was unconstitutional, and a fourth had benefited indirectly from a grant given to an organization. General Waxman, let me see if I understand you. I gather that, that you, you have no doubts on the Article Three question if, uh, if your interpretation of the statute is not correct. If that is correct. In this facial challenge, the statute which says taking into account uh, requires that in passing upon the uh, applications, the panels, diverse though, though they may be, must take into account uh, decency and, and, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, respect for the respect diverse beliefs, for the and, diverse values beliefs and values. Right. Okay. Yes. If, if in fact, it, our do, do they indeed ensure that, that they have decent panels? I mean, how, how do they go about ensuring that? They ensure... Justice Scalia, they ensure that they have diverse panels, and it's just half of it. I mean, it says decency, standards of decency, and respect for diverse beliefs and values. I, it's, I guess it's easy to get diverse. Maybe it's easy to get diverse. How do they ensure decency? Well, the chairperson has the discretion to create the, proceed, the selection procedures any way she or he wants, so long as he is satisfied or ensured that general standards of decency will be taken into account in the process. The NEA thus far has considered that since, and since for most people... You mean in the process? In the, in process, the process of selecting of, the panel? In the How process... How do you take into account standards of decency in selecting in, a panel? In the, pro- really no, in the process of deciding which proposals will be granted on the basis of merit and excellence. And here's how the NEA has construed the statute to work. The NEA chair thus far has concluded that whatever factors an individual takes into consideration in deciding whether something is art, nonetheless, not to mention artistically excellent and artistically merit, meritorious, may be considerations of the mode and form of expression in the case. It's not dispositive, but if it includes a mode or form of communication, the kind of thing that this court distinguished from viewpoint in Denver area and Pacifica and Pico and Bethel, that it, the, the NEA concluded that many, if not most, if not all, certainly at least some people in deciding whether something is really artistically excellent or meritorious or how much it is, will at least think about the mode or form of the presentation that the artist is using. Well, quite, a, quite apart from the, uh, what the NEA has done, I, I've got some difficulties about the standing question akin to those that Justice Kennedy mentioned. I mean, certainly people can't just walk in off the street and make a facial challenge to a statute, can they? They, they have to have some connection with what's being done under the statute. A- absolutely. And what's so... I, I don't want to use a pejorative adjective. What's so unusual about this case is that the plaintiffs in the case who were very successful in forcing Congress to reject what was the, the alternative to this amendment, the Rohrbacher provision that would have prohibited the NEA from funding any art that manifested certain viewpoints. And Congress instead passed the compromise provision along the lines of the recommendations of the independent commission that it had appointed. The same organizations, the same plaintiffs who were successful in the legislature in defeating a viewpoint discriminatory prohibition have challenged this provision on the grounds that 
our interpretation, the way that the NEA has chosen to interpret the statute is wrong, although it's wrong in a way that benefits them. Well, I, I think you can uh, uh, take one position in the legislature and another in the courts. The question is, what does the statute say? Is there an injury? What, what's, I, unu right, what's unusual in this case is that the courts have, are being asked to reject an interpretation, an application of the statute that the agency has reasonably made and which does not, conceitedly does not, violate well, First Mr. Amendment Waxman, rights. Mr. Waxman, could we talk about the statutory language? You know, just reading it, I thought it meant that the chairperson of the NEA had to uh, ensure that, it's, that the regulations and procedures were to provide that artistic excellence and artistic merit are the criteria, but in considering the excellence and merit, they have to take into consideration general standards of decency and respect for diversity. That uh, the interpretation uh, suggested by the agency that just setting up the panels differently uh, was enough strikes me as uh, possibly in conflict with the language of the statute. Well, uh, Justice O'Connor, both lower courts agreed with you. We still submit that there are two well, possible... If, if that is the meaning of the statute, do we nonetheless have a, ju a justiciability question, or do you think I, if that's the meaning of the statute, we don't have a problem of I, justiciability? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I know that the, the plaintiffs would claim that insofar as any decision maker along the line, whether it be a panel member, a council member, or the chair, takes into consideration these two factors, they believe that they are harmed in some way. We don't think that they have demonstrated in any tangible way that they have established injury in the sense that none of them suggest that they have applied for an application and been denied it because an impermissible reading of these a viewpoint discriminatory reading of these words caused it. Well, do they have to have suffered a denial? I mean, their claim is that the statute on its face, if read as Justice O'Connor suggested, in effect is, is, a, is a limitation based on viewpoint which tends to or and reasonably will tend to affect uh, both the, the, the production uh, of art and the applications so that even before you get to the stage of granting or denying uh, you, in fact, will have had a, an impermissible effect. Well, correct? I guess if we're talking now simply about justiciability and not the merits, and I'll, I'll restrict my comments accordingly, first of all, because of the way the agency has interpreted this statute before it was very shortly enjoined from doing it at all, it hasn't had the occasion to define the terms general standards of decency and respect for diverse values. But the way in which, if this court were to conclude that the statutory interpretation that the, NE, that the NEA adopted was not only the best, not the best interpretation, but was an unreasonable interpretation by the agency charged with carrying it out, the appropriate course at this point would be to allow the agency to define the terms and in order to determine whether or not they are in fact viewpoint discriminatory at all. We contend in so are you brief, suggesting that, that we, we would find it non-justiciable because they have not gone through the uh, they, the, the process of defining terms. not because they haven't not because they haven't gone through the process and again this folds a little bit into the merits but I think the justiciability is very much in question because these terms general standards of decency and respect for diverse beliefs and values 
can be defined by the agency, could readily be defined by the agency in a manner that is not viewpoint discriminatory. Are you saying, General Waxman, that if the law is as you say it is, then nobody is being hurt because these words are largely hortatory? Is that essentially your position and that, that challengers can't say, agency, you've got it wrong, you have to interpret this more strictly against us? than you're willing to do. Is that, is that the essence of your justiciability? Well, that's, that's the essence of, the, of, of why we think if our reading is right, there probably is not much of an Article III case or controversy. Even if your reading is wrong. Even if our reading, even even if reading is right. wrong. Uh, the point, Justice Ginsburg, that I was making to Justice Souter is that even if you reject that, even if you say no, what this means is that when these... But how would we even get to that? You see, if, if the challengers are stuck with what the agency says the law is, because that's the only thing that's being applied currently. How can a challenger then require, bring this question to us, unless what they're saying is what's on today could be off tomorrow, and that's their real concern. Because you're not saying that the only construction of these words is the one that you're putting on it. No, that's, that we're absolutely not. But I think the, cor the, the appropriate course for this court to take, if it rejected, if it concluded that our statutory interpretation was unreasonable, would be to permit the agency. After all, none of these people have grants that have. This is not an as-applied challenge. The appropriate course would be to permit the agency to define and apply general standards of decency and respect and see whether it's done in a way that could be said to violate the First Amendment at all. Hasn't it had eight years? Hasn't it had eight years to do that? Precisely to the contrary. During the year and a half period in which the language was passed and the district court enjoined the agency from applying it, it said, we think that this, the, that this provision can be satisfied, that is, that the chairperson can be ensured that these things will be taken into account when you have a diverse, when you have a diverse group of people who bring their own sensibilities to bear in making aesthetic judgments. Since then, the agency has been precluded from doing anything. We, have, we are, have been under an injunction since June of 1992 from implementing this statute. Even issuing a reg? We don't, of course. We can't even read to panelists what the statute well, says. Why didn't the government seek, uh, seek a stay for, from what, single judge injunction? I, I think the answer to, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. You weren't around then either, I, right? I was around. <laughs> I was around in the physical, in the existential sense. I was, I was a, I was uh, in the process of a private citizen, indeed a private lawyer, very much enjoying the arts and all of their manifest <laughs> expressions. But, but let, let me just say this: we, General Waxman, that's been affirmed on that view that the, the law is unconstitutional. Been affirmed on appeal and and. There's, with a denial of rehearing in bank. That's true, and I, I think nobody nobody sought a stay from this court. And, and I, if, Mr. Chief Justice, if I can just get to what I thought my the pitch was going to be after my wind up. The point is <laughs> that the agency has never seen itself. The, the agency views what the district court did as essentially enjoining it from doing something that it wasn't doing and didn't particularly think had to be done, and so. The only tangible way in which the agency operation of this program has been affected by the district court order and the court of appeals order is that when it talks to new panel members, it can't read them the statute, read them the words of the statute. It just tells them 
It's artistic excellence and artistic merit. General Waxman, are you trying to persuade us that even after the statute was passed, Andres Serrano would have the same chance of getting a grant as he did before? Well, I don't know whether, I don't think we have to decide whether he would have the same chance, but what I'm suggesting well, is... If, it, if he has a lesser chance, doesn't the, hasn't the statute had some impact? Well, I, we don't think actually that he would have a lesser chance. Congress rejected, and, and the, the, the legislative debate which we've reprinted uh, in, in our brief and our, in our reply brief is very instructive. Congress rejected a provision that would have denied funding to the Merchant of Venice or Rigoletto or D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. It wanted those provisions to be funded. It just wanted to make sure that in the process of deciding what is the most excellent art in, in a program which is designed to, to uh, benefit the American people and expose people, including young people and people in rural areas, to the benefits of artistic expression, that those things were taken into account. The agency's view, Justice Stevens, is that many people, I know it would be true of me, who go in and to an evaluative process as to whether something is art or excellent art or meritorious art or art that's, that the Congress can spend taxpayers' money to fund, one of the things you think about is the mode of expression. It can either add to or detract from the merit of the, of the proposal, but it's not irrelevant. It when, seems to me you're going to have a hard time persuading me the statute is essentially meaningless, which is basically what you're arguing. Well, we, <laughs> I feel like I'm here making an argument in support of I have the same, the, the same problem. It's, uh, suppose the statute said that each and every grant must meet the following standard, and then it set forth the statutory standard and that each panel member will certify that as to each particular artist uh, whose work has, has, has been approved, that this statute has been met. Is, is your position the same? In other words, if instead of having two criteria with considerations, there were four criteria that had, and each, each thing had to be judged? Yes. Our position would be twofold. One, because we think that standards of decency or general standards of decency and respect for diverse values can be defined in a manner that does not take account of viewpoint, that is not viewpoint discriminatory, for that reason, the provision would be constitutional. As a fallback, if you, didn't, if you thought that it was absolutely unreasonable for the agency to conclude that those provisions couldn't be defined without reference to viewpoint, you would have to then address, we would have to then address the very difficult question that Congress thought in passing this compromise you wouldn't have to address. That is, do we have a statute that establishes independent funding prohibitions that can't be viewed other than as viewpoint discriminatory? And we do acknowledge that that would pose additional First Amendment concerns, but they were concerns that, this, that Congress didn't intend that this court address. One of the reasons, well, the Congress was told with respect to the Rohrabacher Amendment that it may very well be constitutional. There was a big argument among the First Amendment scholarly community, and they very deliberately chose a provision which they thought was going to not embroil the agency in a kind of litigation, endless litigation over its meaning, much the same as well, I, the decision I, I, I that the, think... if, if I may just finish, much the same as the decision the combined federal campaign made in the Cornelius case. I would think that most artists would say that they're interested primarily in mode of expression. Did Picasso have a viewpoint? Uh, I think he was more, much more interested in mode of expression. I, I, it seems to me ultimately that's an unstable line you're drawing. Well, I, 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 I do respectfully disagree to this extent, Justice Kennedy. 
There is no doubt that in considering the content of a work of art, you consider the subject matter, the medium, the mode of expression, and the viewpoint expressed if it's a kind of art that is expressing a viewpoint or could be interpreted as expressing a viewpoint. This court has recognized on several occasions that decency in the term that it was used in Pacifica and Denver area and Pico and Bethel and Kuhlmeyer is distinct from viewpoint. Yes, in use of indecent speech or controversial speech may very, very well add to or subtract from the force of the message, but it's not the same as viewpoint. And similarly, well, will you help me with some just basic inquiry? If the federal government wants to buy artwork to put in the Capitol, I assume it can go out and select works of art that its committee thinks are decent and represent diversity and can spend the federal money for that kind of art and it isn't open to challenge. Is that right? Assuredly right. Now, if the government wants to educate children or people and chooses to speak by way of paying for a certain kind of artistic expression as a means of the government speaking and educating and insists on decency and diversity, it can do that. Sure, we believe that it can. All right. Here, it has a limited amount of money to give away. Now, what is it that makes it impossible for the government to give a limited amount of money away on the same standards? Is the government not speaking? I mean, what, what do we have here? I, I, I'll state the obvious and suggest that the question probably be better answered than my friend Professor Cole, because we don't think there is any constitutional problem here with this provision. I mean, the, the argument on the other side boils down to the fact that three years ago this court decided in a context that is wholly different than the one we have here, a case called Rosenberger versus the rectors and visitors of the university. General Waxman, may I suggest that maybe there is something different. Maybe if a faithful executive is trying to carry out the legislative will, the message that comes from the whole history of this is don't fund Serrano or Maplethorpe. I think that that's uh, the, the concern and not the Rosenberger versus Rothschild. That, if I, if I am an executive who is trying to be faithful to the legislative will, I know what prompted this. So why don't I say, well, that's my marching orders. I know what the legislature didn't want. Well, I guess I have a couple of answers. One, a chairperson could have done that. Chairpersons, as the other side points out, were highly cognizant of political concerns without the enactment of this rather innocuous amendment. That's number one. Number two, what the 1990 legislative debate shows is exactly the opposite. The point of view expressed in the Rohrbacher Amendment and previously challenged by Representative Biagi that certain art that is viewpoint discriminatory or denigrates religion or races won't be funded was rejected. The legislative history is shot through and through with the fact that what Congress wanted was what the independent commission it had appointed was, had suggested, which is that you change the procedures, you not employ specific content or viewpoint prohibitions, and to the extent you want things like decency to be considered, it be embedded in the subjective aesthetic judgments about what's uh, meritorious and excellent. General Waxman, I thought your first response to, to, to Justice Ginsburg's question was going to be, so what? I, I thought that what, what you responded to uh, uh, 
to Ju- Justice O'Connor was when the, the, the government doesn't have to buy Maplethorpe pictures to hang up itself. And so also when it, when it funds the arts, it doesn't have to fund Maplethorpe. And he can say we don't like Maplethorpe. Uh, I knew that that would, I knew you would support you knew I that answer. answer. <laughs> <laughs> may, may I reserve the balance of my time for reply? Why isn't he right? Why isn't he right? Well, I mean, why, why, does the government have to or not? Well, if you're talking about, if we're talking about whether Congress can say, okay, the NEA is going to apply the following standards, but it's not going to fund Robert Mapplethorpe, that raises many different constitutional concerns that don't have, in other words, going to single out one particular person, it, at that point may violate, it would have to be scrutinized under, for example, the due process clause as to whether there is a rational basis. Well, is it for constitutionally it, principled for the government to do this by a wink, wink, nudge, nudge uh, approach, which is what you're suggesting, uh, that they pass a statute which is really meaningless, but everybody knows what it means. That's, that is not, that's not, Justice Kennedy, what we're suggesting was done here. What was done, this is, almost a year ago to the day, I was up here arguing the constitutionality of the Communications Decency Act, which was an act that Congress passed without any hearings and without any debate and without hearing anybody's views and was just stuck in on the floor in a rather quick attempt to deal with a serious problem. In this case, Congress did just the opposite, and it rejected the kind of provision for whether it had to or didn't have to, it rejected as more First Amendment consti- controversial the, pro- the Rohrabacher provision that had been urged. But you assume that that's unconstitutional. What if I'm, Congress doesn't name names? It just says no crucifixes in Europe. Can I, I am, say that? Justice Scalia... Can it I, say that? It doesn't name any name. Justice Scalia, I am not assuming, I'm not standing up here arguing that it would be unconstitutional. I think it may well be that in the unique circumstances of public arts funding, I, unlike the very different context in Rosenberger, viewpoint distinctions may be constitutional. So you, in effect, are saying, I'm not going to rest my argument on the claim that the government is hiring anyone to speak here, or that what it's doing bears an analogy to that, or that, in fact, uh, the government is buying art, or that it bears an analogy to that. You're really saying there's, there's, a, there's a third rule. The, go- the government, the government as, uh, as, as distributor of, of largesse to the arts, and that, that's a third rule. But you're not saying that the government is either the speaker or the buyer. Is that correct? Well, I think the government is the buyer. What's the government, buying? It's buying. What does it own when, when it, after it's the grant? The, this, I, I think this is a distinction without a difference to our argument, but it is, in fact, it's behaving as governments and sovereigns as arts patrons always have. When the Medici's... Yeah, but the king ended up with the picture. The government is not ending up with the picture. The king did not necessarily end up with the picture. The Medici's, for example, funded art that was placed in all over their realm. The same people who funded and allowed to flourish the great university, that forum, that community, where free and uninhibited expression of debate and views occurred, were also arts patrons, and they bought and funded what they liked. Okay, then you are saying there is, a, there is an art patrons rule. I take it you're not hitching your argument either to the claim that the government is buying uh, or the, the claim that the, uh, that, uh, the, that, the, uh, that the government, uh, what is my... Is, 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 is itself a speaker? Well, I think, Hiring a speaker. Yes. I, to the ex- if you're asking whether we're, whether we're suggesting that there is something unique, particularly unique about the government funding of the arts for First Amendment purposes, the answer is yes, and for a variety of reasons. For one thing, and most critically, this is an area in which 
government decision makers are expected and required to make precisely the kind of aesthetic judgments which are subjective and may take content and viewpoint into account in which the government is ordinarily prohibited from doing. Why are they required when they're not required to do this at all? Why is the government required when the government is not required, in fact, to fund the arts at all? Where does the requirement come from? Unless you have a program, Justice Souter, in which the NEA is simply disestablished because of a belief that the First Amendment wouldn't permit funding of the arts, or unless you, can, you set up a program where you know, the proposals that were on the thickest paper or the ones that came in you know, first uh, were granted, inevitably the decision maker is going to be making the kind of aesthetic judgments that, for example, were not permitted in Ward versus Rock Against Racism. Thank, Thank you, you, General Waxman. Uh, Mr. Cole, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As the government concedes, this is not a case about government speech. It's not a case about the government hiring artists to express a government message. Rather, it's a case about the government selectively subsidizing private speakers speaking for themselves. And in that setting, two fundamental First Amendment principles apply, and the Decency and Respect Clause violates both. First, the government subsidies must be viewpoint neutral. This, ca this Court has held that in, in Lamb's Chapel, in Rosenberger, in Cornelius. Second, Rosenberger was quite different from this, Mr. Pope. There were just uh, a number of, uh, everybody was going to get something in Rosenberger, except the people who wanted to do something religious. Here, the government doesn't purport to say we're going to give grants to everybody that wants it. There's a definite degree of selectivity involved. There is a degree of selectivity involved here, but there was also, Chief Justice Rehnquist, a degree of selectivity in Rosenberger. Approximately nine of ten applicants were funded in Rosenberg. Approximately two of seven applicants to the NEA are... are well, that, that's quite different, I think. Well, I don't think it makes a constitutional difference. And I think when you look at Rosenberger, what Rosenberger, what the University of Virginia did was they said, we will fund not any student activity that comes to us, but any student activity that is related to the educational purposes of the university. So they were selective. They were making a content-based... Yes, but I, I think the Chief Justice is, is correct in making the distinction. There, 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 there were no aesthetic judgments to be made. Uh, there were no subjective judgments to be made. If you were a student newspaper, you fell within the program, that was it. And, and, and I think your, your, your statistical analysis is, is misleading because NEA statistics are that they have... Uh, only so many funds, and they base it on aesthetics. Uh, the, the only reason there were rejections in Rosenberger was they just didn't, they weren't the kind of newspapers that were under the program. So I, I think the Chief Justice is correct in the distinction he made. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure, Justice Kennedy, whether there's a distinction between a government agency which makes judgments about educational purpose and allocates funds selectively on that basis, or academic merit, which is what public universities do in hiring, and the NEA, which makes judgments based on artistic merit. I think all of those programs are selective. They take into account content. But what this court has said is that you cannot, when subsidizing private speakers, when the government is not speaking itself, you cannot engage in viewpoint bias. And the Mr. Cole, may I suggest that one is a prize or an award, and there really is a difference between student activity funds that if you're not social and you, you're engaged in some respectable student, student activity, you get it. And an award, a prize, a grant that is highly selective. And well, so I, I quite agree 
And I don't think that you can maintain that this is just like Rosenberger, just like a bulletin board, anybody can put up their names or, or draw from that pot except certain people. Right. Okay, well, Justice Ginsburg, I don't think that the, case, the, the Rosenberger case would have come out differently if the University of Virginia had a limited pot of funds and said, based on that limited pot of funds, we're going to give funding to those groups which best further the educational purpose of the uh, university. And they turned out they gave them out to two of seven applicants, but they excluded religious groups, groups with religious perspectives. That would still be an exclusion based upon viewpoint, which would be impermissible. And I don't think the case would have come out differently if it was two of seven. The court in Rosenberger said scarcity is not a justification for viewpoint. You're a better predictor than I am. I'm, I'm not at all sure it wouldn't have come out differently. Well, you were in the majority, so you, you're a better predictor than I am, I'm sure. Um, but I don't think it should... My record's not very good. I, I, would, I wouldn't give up too easily. <laughs> I guess I think what's important is that it shouldn't come out differently, and here's why. Um, what Rosenberger recognizes is that there's a very big difference between the government speaking for itself, where it can make viewpoint decisions, as in uh, Rust, and where the government is facilitating private expression. Why is that an important distinction? I think that's an important distinction because there's a very big difference between the government participating in the marketplace with the power of its ideas, on the one hand, and the government engaging in a kind of deceptive ventriloquism in which it says it's funding a broad range of private expression, but then it uses viewpoint-based criteria to... Well, I'm not sure that decency or indecency is viewpoint-based. I'm not sure it is. Well, I think... I'm not sure that respect is a viewpoint-based thing or or diversity. I, I don't even know what this is. And you've got some kind of a facial challenge here, I gather. Right. Well, I, I, and, I would... Uh, I'd be interested for you to also pursue whether we have an Article Three case at all. Okay. Well, all right. Well, um, I'll answer your questions in turn, Justice O'Connor. First, um, decency and, and respect are inherently, as they're used in this statute, viewpoint-based. The common definition of decency is conformity to accepted standards of morality. That's what this court said in Pacifica. Conformity to accepted standards of morality, whether something conforms or not, is a viewpoint distinction. The same subject matter, if it's treated in a way that conforms to, to accepted standards of morality, is permitted. If it's treated in, through a viewpoint that does not, it is not. The same with respect. The respect clause requires respect of American beliefs and values. If you are disrespectful of American beliefs and values, you are disadvantaged. If you are respectful, you are advantaged. That the court in Rosenberg has said the way you distinguish viewpoints... Right, you, you, you don't argue here that somehow the government has created some kind of a public forum, do you? Well, in essence, that's what the NEA says. The NEA says that the, the arts... I funding, didn't hear that. Well, they say in their mission statement, and it's, it's cited in the record, that they, they, they create a national forum for the exchange of ideas by, by creating, as, as is set forth in the statute, uh, a climate... Well, I'm talking about a public forum in the sense that this court has used it. Do well, you take the position and rely on some kind of forum analysis? Well, I think under forum analysis we win. I think under forum analysis, as this court has said, even if you conclude that it's a non That doesn't forum. answer the question. Do you take the position that this funding program creates some kind of public forum? I yes or no? We take the position that whether it does or not, we prevail because this court has held that even in a non-public forum, viewpoint neutrality is required and vagueness is not permitted. And these criteria are both viewpoint-based and vague. If I could address your standing question and Justice Kennedy's standing question uh, for a moment, I think City of Lakewood versus Plain Dealer Publishing clearly establishes that there is standing here. In Plain Deal, in that case, the court held that there was standing to bring a facial challenge by a newspaper 
who sought access to a benefit for speech, access to news boxes. There was no requirement that the city give out news boxes, but they had given a government official unbridled discretion in how to um, give them out. And the court held in that case that the chill from unbridled discretion statutes in the allocation of benefits to speech, no entitlement, benefits to speech, can be alleviated only through a facial challenge. I, I think I would agree with you if, if the agency here were, were applying the law the way you interpret it and the way the lower courts interpret it. But I, I do find it strange that where you have a law which, however unrealistic the interpretation may be, the agency says, we're interpreting it in such a way that, uh, that we, will, we will fund Maplethorpe and everything else. Uh, well, now, now that, that may be wrong. Yeah. I don't know how anybody on the other side of this issue could, could compel the agency to, to do it right. right. But, well, it but certainly, why, why did that hurt you? Well, it, 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 it hurts us um, for the following reason, uh, Justice Scalia. The government has been quite ambiguous about its statutory construction. And what it has said is that the statutory construction it is advancing to this court today is the same statutory construction that they applied for the year and a half before the statute was declared unconstitutional. So let's look at what they did for the year and a half before the court struck it down. They instructed each panelist to bring their own standards of decency to the table in making these decisions. They went to each panel, they read them the statute, they said the statute says that you must consider artistic excellence and artistic merit, taking into consideration general standards of decency. Mr. Paul, may I stop you just for a moment because it sounds like you're veering away from a case that would be fit for summary judgment, which is what this was. I, I take it there would be some dispute about what went on. I don't there was think no hearing about that to develop that. I don't think Government, there's... You're making uh, assertions today uh, I would certainly be interested to find out what the government's position is on it, but I thought we're dealing with a ruling as a matter of law and that we take the government's position of what they say the statute means, that's what they say the statute means, and that's what they're enforcing. That's what they've represented to this court. And to say, no, they're not telling you the truth about what standard they're implying is quite a charge to make. Well, Your Honor, I, all I can say is the record is very clear. The reason that it was summary judgment is that there was no dispute about this. The uh, ch Chairman Fronmeyer testified before Congress, was asked, how do you take into consideration general standards of decency? He said, well, I can't, and I'm going I'm to read, he said, no one individual is wise enough to be able to consider general standards of decency and the diverse beliefs and values of the American public all by his or herself. These are group decisions. They are made by the National Council on the Arts, as well as the panelists. Now, if the chair was making decisions about decency in selecting panels, he wouldn't say these are group decisions made by the Council on the Arts, as well as the panelists. He was then asked, what happens if you get a record? So he was the chairman of the NEA at he was, the time? He was the chair, yes, Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist. He was the chair at the time that the statute was being enforced. He was then asked, well, what, what would you do? Are you abdicating your responsibility in applying this statute? What would you do if something came up to you and it was indecent or disrespectful? He said, I would send it back to the panels and the council if I thought they made a mistake. So he's saying, I'll look at decency to make sure that they have not made a mistake. The next chair, who was also enforcing the statute before it was struck down, Ms. Radici, testified in Congress that she would be happy to and would apply decency to the grant-making process. So I think you have to look, as this court said in Forsyth County, in a facial challenge, you have to look at how the agency has, in fact, applied the statute. There's no dispute about it. And, when, and, and they're quite vague, actually, in this court in what they say. 
Well, they're quite vague about how they apply it. I agree with that, but I also found right in the record what the Solicitor General just quoted was there. On page 33, the instructions that they give. So if you have an object, I assume you don't object to that as a correct... But I, my basic question is, given the uncertainty that you... You started with a premise. And if I accept that premise, a lot flows. You said all they're doing is subsidizing private views here. But in looking at the endowment charter, it sounds as if they have a lot they do. It talks about education. It talks about grants to schools. It talks about workshops. It talks about teaching children. It talks about uh, a whole host of things that aren't simply that, that could include giving money to somebody to teach art in the public school grade four, uh, that could include uh, having a, a television program on Sesame Street, dozens of things. All right, Is, am I accurate? Yes. All right, well, if I'm accurate, how can you have a facial challenge, no matter how you interpret indecency? Because, because after all, there's some important uses where the most tough definition would apply. Well, Justice Breyer, two points with respect to that. First of all, I think you have to look at the breadth of the statute. This statute does not say, take into consideration decency where, it, where children are involved. It, it, it requires the agency to take into consideration standards of decency and American beliefs and values in every application um, uh, decision. Secondly, um, uh, well, we've said you can't bring a facial challenge if any part of the statute can be constitutionally applied. And our position is that this statute is unconstitutional because it is viewpoint-based. It uses a viewpoint-based criteria. If, 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 if you would, say it could be, the, the language could be applied where children are involved, you lose your I, facial challenge. I don't think it could be applied where children are what, what, what the court could do, in a, you know, what the agency could do, is decide whether uh, a particular application was suitable for children. But it, uh, an application could be suitable or unsuitable for children for all sorts of ways that don't have to do with viewpoint. What's problematic about this statute is it singles out art precisely because it has a non-conforming or disrespectful viewpoint. And as this court has said, even when the government is allocating subsidies, if it's doing it to private speakers, it can't skew the marketplace by attempting to impose that kind of ideological screen. I think... But that, that wasn't my question. My question was basically, you're making a facial challenge. I don't see it says all. I, not in my version, it doesn't say all. And, and as long as they're, 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 the problem, in my mind, for you, is I can easily think of some, some instances of importance in the life of the uh, NEA where it would be obviously appropriate or lawful to take into account even tough standards of decency. And the other problem for you is I don't know what the word decency means. It there's certainly a sense of decency, a sense of it, in which no work of art that is good could be indecent. It's very hard for me to think, if I think of that sense, that a great work of art is also an indecent work. I can't think of one. And so, since we don't know either the, let's call it the horizontal meaning, or the vertical application, how can we now strike the statute down on its face? Well, Your, Your Honor, in the Lakewood case, the government came forward and said certainly there would be appropriate considerations that the uh, mayor could use in deciding how to allocate these benefits to speech. The court said that is not permissible to defeat a statute which is vague and gives the agency unbiased And then should we also strike down the entire NEA? Because at the very beginning of it, after all, there, there is at the very beginning all kinds of language about uh, uh, how this is, has to be done with general regard for taxpayer uh, sensibilities. And uh, do we have to strike down the FCC statute? Because the FCC says award 
licenses in the public interest, uh, which has been plainly interpreted to give the FCC power to do all kinds of restrictions in the area of indecency. Right, well, and, uh, there are lots of statutes on the statute books that have general language that might be interpreted by an agency to censor in accordance with viewpoints, but the agency doesn't do it correctly so. Just, um, so, so. Do you see my point? My, well, my uh, question uh, is, uh, how, why should we not give them the same presumption we give to every other agency? They'll do it properly, we assume, until they don't. Well, first of all, they did it, and you can see how they did it. They're, the client got the grant. Uh, the, the, client, the, the, the way that this statute, the way that this, um, statute was enforced, they never issue a decision saying you're denied because of indecency. We, I, I represent the National Association of Artists Organizations, which represents 500 arts institutions and individuals who regularly apply for are denied funding by the NEA. What the, cl the claim is that the application of such open-ended criteria to an applicant creates a chill, which, as this court held in Lakewood, requires a facial challenge. And you can't sit back and let that chill uh, affect artists' speech in the meantime. And that so would be so no matter how the agency itself is interpreting the statute, because you claim that the possibility of interpreting it to mean what it says is uh, substantial enough that uh, artists who are developing projects are not likely to develop projects that, uh, that, uh, that would offend well, the statute as it's written. Well, I think certainly it applies here where the agency did apply it in a way that was chilling. The language does not permit... Uh, an Let's assume the agency didn't, because I think that's going to be a very controverted proposition that wouldn't justify a summary judgment. Let's assume that the agency has not interpreted it in, in, in such a way that there's, uh, that there's any uh, uh, constitutional violation of the sort you allege. But let's also assume that you claim that, that in, in doing it that way, they are not complying with the, with the proper interpretation of the statute. All right? Would you, would you not still make the argument that since the statute says something different from what they're doing, uh, our First Amendment cases, which allow challenges uh, uh, of a much broader scope than, uh, than, than in other fields, would enable your clients to say that they are being deterred from developing... Uh, uh, indecent uh, artistic uh, programs by the statute that's staring them in the face, even though today the agency has said, well, we're going to ignore it. Isn't that your argument? Well, that is, that is I, I, we, we would make that claim, but we would also make the claim, Justice Scalia, that the government itself took, has taken the position in this litigation that the statute is indeterminate and no one can guess how the chairperson if, might implement if, if the statute. Justice, if you answer yes to Justice Scalia, then you're just sticking pins into yourself, basically. You're saying that things are all right now, but if they really opened up on this thing, they might be worse later. No, I'm not saying that, Chief Justice Rehnquist. I'm saying if that were the case, but that is not the case, uh, as, as the record makes absolutely clear. And secondly, um, I'm saying that even if, even if the agency were somehow able to read a statute which says decency and respect must be considered, to say decency and respect will not be considered, um, it, it, the agency can't do that. The statute simply cannot be read in that way. Now, I, I don't know why you run away from this. Suppose you, you had a, a municipal office that issues parade permits, and it sets forth criteria that are plainly discriminatory. It says we won't allow parades by this group, that group, and the other group, and, and, and it's plainly uh, unconstitutional. But the agency, in fact, says, well, that's what it says, but, but we, don't really, we don't really apply these regulations that way. You'd have a First Amendment claim to, to, to right. challenge the regulation as written, wouldn't you? That's right. All I'm suggesting um, in response to Chief Justice Rehnquist is that is not 
the facts of this case. But yes, we would have a, a claim. And I think now, is it, is it the case, just to go to the merits for a second, and I'm only asking these questions in order to get your response, say, uh, if in fact the NEA wants to give a grant for somebody uh, to produce something that's public work, and suppose what they do is a white supremacist group, and they want to have uh, uh, racial epithets all over the picture, and, and the NEA says, we think that's an inappropriate, uh, uh, an inappropriate use of this money. Uh, in, in your opinion, uh, is that? We can imagine most, imagine the most horrible ones you can possibly think of. All right? And they say the person gets up there and he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan or whatever, and this is my point of view. And is it your view in that the Constitution requires the NEA to fund that, uh, uh, that particular uh, 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 right? Well, uh, Justice Breyer, the Constitution doesn't require the NEA to fund anybody. No, no, um, no, I'm sorry. Everything else being equal, what the person says, I'm taking you at your, you know, right. tough for you. Take everything you say is correct, and then we get to this point, and the panel's sitting there and saying, you know, I, I grant you it's as good a work as art as anything else purely artistically, but I don't think that this particular work of art is appropriate for a school, for a public place, for a television program, and then the hardest case you know, which you're most likely to say yes, that, agree, that it's unconstitutional, uh, just because what this person wants to do is go and exhibit at a lot of workshops. Now, now what's your view on that, on the merits of that constitutional question? Our position, uh, Justice Breyer, is that it is unconstitutional for the government to set up a funding program to fund private speech broadly and then to exclude recipients based on their viewpoint. Now, a, 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 the, the example you gave might be denied funding for all sorts of reasons, but if it is denied because of disapproval of the viewpoint, that is what this court has said, the paradigmatic First Amendment. So, so do we have to distribute uh, or uh, exhibit it in the courthouse? No, because then you're engaged in government speech. Of course the government, in making decisions about its own aesthetic uh, spaces, when it's it is a program, I have that. If it's a program for a school, if it's a program through a school, I think it's appropriate to consider what is suitable for children. I don't think it's appropriate to use viewpoint as a proxy for suitability for children. Suitability for children could take into account whole sorts of, all sorts of... Uh, so they have to exhibit my example in the school? No. If, if the reason that they have... Well, let me, let, me, let me step back for one moment. First, if the reason is that they disapprove of the viewpoint, that's problematic generally. In the school setting, in the school setting, this court has recognized that there's a legitimate inculcative role that the school board plays and, and, uh, and can therefore make all kinds of viewpoint. It is engaged in government speech. But the NEA, this is not, um, this is a, uh, the breadth of this statute, I think, distinguishes it from anything like that. I mean, this is kind of like Romer. You could imagine a situation in which it would be appropriate or not unconstitutional to deny uh, 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 civil rights protections to gays and lesbians, but the breadth of the statute, the, 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 the application of it across the board. Well, and then the I, 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 I take it then that you would say that if general state standards of decency were left out of the statute, so the statute read that the NEA must take into consideration respect for the diverse beliefs and values of the American people, same problem, unconstitutional viewpoint. Well, I think they have to be read together, Your Honor, in light no, of no, my hypothetical. Okay, on, on, on your hypothetical, on your hypothetical, uh, Justice Kennedy, if if it, what it means is it is favoring those artistic expressions, but that's which the are, problem. What it means, that you, and that's the government tells us this is what it means, and you say no, it can't mean that, and two courts have said it can't mean that, and yet the government is saying here were words, decent, respect. 
they can be interpreted different ways. And usually, I thought, it was the obligation of a government officer to give words a meaning that renders them consistent, not inconsistent, with constitutional limitations. And you, yet you're insisting that government officers take the position with respect to these two words that they interpret them in the way that would be most offensive to the Constitution. Well, I, I'm, I'm just saying what they did, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm saying that the, the, the suggestion that decency and respect might be considered simply through picking pan diverse panels and no more, and not taking decency and respect even into account in choosing the panels, is completely inconsistent with the statute. It would render the 954D1 redundant of 959C. Congress in the statute said decency and respect are the criteria by which applications are to be judged in 954D1. In 959C, it said, panels shall be cho chosen in a diverse way. You can't, they must have meant something when they put the decency and respect clause in the criteria subsection of the statute and not in the panel selection. Mr. Cohen, no. I ask you a question about your constitutional position. We've talked a lot about what statute means. Assume your, meaning of the, your reading of the statute is entirely correct. As I understand your brief, you, you draw this distinction between the government as a speaker and the government subsidizing private speech. And I have two questions. First, if the government has a list of topics such as say no to drugs, guns are dangerous, preserve the environment, one, I think you would agree they could subsidize private speech by saying we want poems, plays, and so forth advocating those particular causes. Right. And maybe have a list of 20 things. Now, if they can do that by subsidizing private speakers to come up with creative ways of carrying that message, why can they not subsidize all other speech and say you may not contravene any of the messages we want to finance? Right. Well, the reason, I think, is, that is, is the distinction this court drew in Rosenberger between government speech and facilitating private expression. And when the government comes out and says, we're engaging in a government speech program, we know, as the citizens of the United States, it's the government speaking. When they hire artists to do a Say No to Drugs campaign throughout the schools, et cetera, we know it's the government speaking. We can take that into account. When they, by contrast, set up a program which is purportedly a program to fund... No, it isn't, because they say very clearly, it's general for all kinds of speech you can think of except topics 1 through 20. We will finance those, and we will also uh, refuse to finance those who oppose those topics. Now, what, what, there's no, no, no mystery about what they're saying. You're saying, you're saying it's kind of a, a misleading thing because they tell everybody we're subsidizing everything. But I'm saying the statute is perfectly clear that there are 20 topics that may not be controverted. Now, there's no misleading aspect to it. Well, that was, that, that was Rosenberger. Uh, in Rosenberger, they said, we're not funding religious viewpoints. Your and whole point, your, your whole case rests on Rosenberger. Well, I don't think so, Your Honor, because uh, in Lamb's Chapel, this court held that viewpoint uh, discrimination is not permitted in non-public forums. In Cornelius, it held the same. I think what this court has said repeatedly is that when the government is, is, is facilitating private expression, it cannot engage in viewpoint discrimination. But you've just agreed it can. If you give a list of 20 topics that you will finance and finance private speakers to speak any way they want to on those topics, it is doing that on a purely viewpoint-based uh, ground. Oh, well, I'm, uh, and if, if they're financing saying, oh, private speech on the 20 topics they want to... They want if they're, Justice Stevens, if they're funding topics, that's subject matter, that's permissible. They're funding artists, but artists who just portray these particular 20 topics that they've right. designated. Topics, there's no problem with topics. That, the court has held that repeatedly. It's, it's viewpoint discrimination which is impermissible. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's when you take one side or another on a given subject matter. Under this statute, if you... If an artist has a, has a, 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 a presents a nude, which is 
disrespectful or indecent, that viewpoint is disadvantaged. If it's respectful or decent, it's advantaged. That is viewpoint discrimination. And finally, I'd like to say that the court has consistently applied... But surely viewpoint discrimination, if you say, I'll finance a program that says, don't say no to drugs, but I won't finance one that says, say yes to drugs. That's viewpoint discrimination. That is, and then that would be the government speaking, and we would know that. But the government, if you think about, if you think about private expression in this country, virtually every form of important private expression is funded by the government. Uh, the print press gets mailing privileges. The broadcast press gets licenses. The public broadcasting gets taxpayer dollars. I, I see where you're going there. Can I give you, I give you 30 seconds on the subject of the Ninth Circuit opinion? Why, why is it that the word decency or respect is somehow more vague than the words artistic excellence? Well, for two reasons, uh, Justice Breyer. First, artistic merit uh, has been applied by a profession so that there is a set of people, the people... You mean people, people who are professionals know more about what's artistically good than the average person? Yes, I would have thought there's a strong view, isn't there, that what is good and beautiful is accessible to everyone. Well, I think there's a strong view, uh, Your, Your Honor, that artistic merit, like academic merit, and like character and fitness... Oh, my God. But if the government says what we want is that which ordinary people believe is beautiful, doesn't the government have a right to fund that kind of program? I, do, I think what the government does not have the right to do is to exclude um, viewpoints, which uh, it... You know, you know, we're talking only about... I'm talking only about the... Sorry, you're on. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Cole. The case is submitted.